Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and I'm joined today by senior tech one reporter on the FinTech Beat. It's Marianne Azevedo. Marianne, hi, how are you? Hey, Alex, how's it going? Well, I'm still in complete denial of the fact that it's actually now winter and I have to wear socks. But other than that, life's pretty good. Uh, is it cold down in Texas? Uh, I wouldn't say cold. 60s, but it's been really dreary. So that always kind of kind of brings me yeah. down. I need sunshine. I don't care if it's a little cold, but I need sunshine. This is why I think everyone who thinks fall is the best season is insane because fall just kicks you right into winter and that makes me sad. But you know what doesn't make me sad? Kirsten Korosek, who's also with us on this fine Friday. Kirsten, you're in the Sun Belt. Tell me, please, God, the weather's better there than it is here. I love the fall, Alex. I hope that's not too triggering for you because this is when we all come out of our little caves because we were hiding in them because it was so hot and now we're doing all the things. So it's super exciting. So you have... The inverse of my climate, because now everyone here has gone inside because it's now too cold. Yeah, all the festivals are happening now. And uh, other news alert, I just finished the last of the Thanksgiving leftovers. There you go. Wow. Good for you. I'm impressed that you actually managed to keep them that long. Usually after like the third day, I'm like, all right, if I see one more like sweet potato, I'm going to lose my shit. So that's impressive. Shout out to your family. Um, On the show today, my friends, we have a quick cruise update. And then in the deals of the week column, we're going to talk about Webull buying Flink. What is Uber doing in London and why Blackstone is all about dog walking? Then IPOs are back. Question mark. Talk about that. And then we'll wrap up with startup funding in both Europe and then the Australia, New Zealand region. It's going to be a blast. But Kirsten, much to my chagrin, it does appear that investment in one self-driving car company is about to be slashed. Yeah, slashed is a good word. We don't know the details yet, but since last time I was here on the podcast, a lot has happened at Cruise. The co-founder and CEO, Kyle Vogt, who was on our stage not just three months ago, is gone, resigned. Wow. Some GM executives have come in. Some Cruise executives have been promoted. And now there's no CEO, but co-presidents and a lot going on. Uh, Basically, GM, they just gave an update really about restating their guidance, talking about what the labor deal was going to cost them, which is about in the total of its lifetime, $9.3 billion. Also, restating that they're going to now launch a repurchase, a share repurchase program. And tucked in that news, and actually a lot of questions that they got were about Cruise. And the big thing with Cruise is they are going to take a go slow approach, a deliberate approach. They use the word deliberate multiple times. And as a result, they're going to cut spending by hundreds of millions of dollars in 2024. Okay. So I want to put these numbers into a little bit of context. Kirsten, a $10 billion buyback is about a quarter of the company more or less. I think it's worth about $40 billion. So that's an enormous dollar amount. We don't usually see companies buying back such a large percentage of their stock in kind of one announcement. Often, actually, it's just a way to combat share inflation from share-based comp. On the cruise thing, though, by cutting hundreds of millions of dollars in spend there, is that like a defenestration of their self-driving efforts, or is that more of a modest cost cut? Can you put that into perspective for us. All right. So here's the perspective. In the third quarter of 2023, Cruise, per the GM's earnings statement, lost $732 million in that quarter. So, you know, that's a a couple hundred million dollars a month that they were spending. So if you were then to say they're going to cut spending by hundreds of millions of dollars, well, what are we talking about? 
tens of hundreds of millions of dollars, a billion dollars, or <laughs> uh, to or a month's worth or a month's worth of spending. So I think we're not really clear. I'm going to go more towards the, the the greater amount. I see pretty big layoffs operationally. They do not need to have all these people working. They also talked a lot about synergies between software at GM and software at Cruise. So I don't think software engineers are necessarily in the clear either. Well, if you cut $250 million from a $2.5 billion a year budget or $3 billion, you're going to into the double-digit percentage points. 415 Yeah, okay. It's, pretty, it's going to be material. Yes. So does this mean that I'm not going to get self-driving cars as fast as I, I was going to before this? Well... Yes, that's the, the oh. very short, very short answer. Right now, Waymo is still plugging ahead in markets like Phoenix and and San Francisco. Uh, Cruz says that when they do get through two third party investigations or reviews, looking at safety and how and why things went sideways so quickly, they said when they do decide to relaunch, it'll just be in one city. And so the question, of course, is which city are they going to do? Right now, they do not have permits to operate commercially driverless robotaxis in California. So their headquarters are in San Francisco. Where do they go? I'm kind of putting my money on Texas. Unfortunately, you're probably right. Surely you mean fortunately, Marianne. You love living in the future. It's your favorite thing. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it is Austin. I mean, Waymo has a presence here already too, right? Waymo has had a presence in Austin, but not the same level as Cruise. They're very visible in Phoenix, of course, and in San Francisco. And they were early days in, in Austin and then kind of retreated for a while and then are coming back in. Austin is up there. Miami is another one that's on my list. So essentially flat cities is what I'm hearing here. Hill's bad, flat good if you want self-driving technology. All right, we'll have more about that as we learn. Of course, we're keeping close eyes on all things self-driving because, well, it's a big technology story that has seen billions of dollars of investment, but we have to turn the page over to our deals of the week. And the first one, Marianne, is a bit of a surprise. We're talking about an acquisition in fintech, which is cool. We haven't heard about those in a while. Yeah, it feels like it's been a minute. Weeble has acquired a Mexican fintech called Flink. And it's uh, Flink is a stock trading app. I wrote about the company in 2021. And at the time I thought, wow, this is pretty innovative for a Latin American market. They had raised $57 million back in August, 2021. Um, the investors include, uh, let's see, the Chainsmokers uh, VC firm, <laughs> Excel, Lightspeed Venture Partners. And um, Flink... Flink began offering Mexicans the ability to buy and sell fractional shares without commissions in New York Stock Exchange listed stocks back in 2020. Um, So that was something I think that market, there was a lot of appetite for it. They were hungry for it. As of 2021, the company had 1.6 million users. Unfortunately, I don't have updated numbers, but apparently what they were doing caught the eye of Weeble, who has acquired the company. Um, So yeah, another acquisition in LATAM. Earlier this year, we covered Visa's plans to acquire uh, Pismo, a payments infrastructure company. So I I think this is a really interesting trend. Okay. But acquiring a a payments firm to me is is a a clear business. People do payments, and, and no matter what the economy is and what consumers are up to, payments flow. 
fractional trading of stocks does seem to be something that was a much bigger uh, phenomena in the 2000, 2021 era. So my question, Marianne, is do you think this is Webull tactically buying a competitor on the cheap because they want more market access? Or do you think Flink was <clears throat> uh, struggling a bit and Webull is a soft landing that they're going to use to stay in business? I could be wrong, but I would go more with the former. I think um, okay. Webull's already in, let's see, eight other, well, actually nine markets or eight, sorry, eight markets besides Mexico, um, US, Hong Kong, Singapore, Indonesia, Australia, South Africa, Japan, and the UK. So this gives it an entry into the Mexican market without having yeah. to start from scratch. They've got uh, an app that's already you know known there that's proven, been around for years, trusted apparently, which I think is big, especially in LATAM, where trust is, is a, I think, even bigger deal than, say, somewhere like the US. And so I think buying a company that's already there, already got a millions of users, or we don't know exactly, but over a million users, seems like a good strategy for entering a market. Yeah, I like it. Marianne, you mentioned that it was an interesting trend, and I'm wondering if you called back to a, another acquisition, but are you, is, are these the only two? Or are you starting to see more fintech M&A, I guess, in Latin America? Yeah, I would say usually three makes a trend. So we really need like maybe one more to to full call it a full blown trend. But but I think considering the fact that we haven't seen that much M and A in the fintech space this year, this is notable. I mean, two fairly decent decent size acquisitions. We don't know how much Webull paid for Flink, but I mean, if if they raised a fifty seven million dollars Series B in twenty twenty one. It's really not so much about the, I think, cash amount of the deal. It's just significant to me that the company is entering the Mexican market. They chose to acquire a company there. Obviously, they thought it was doing well enough and had good enough technology to buy it. Um, Visa buying Pismo was a big deal. They could have bought a pay payments infrastructure company from anywhere in the world, including the U.S., chose to buy a Brazilian company. So... I think these are really big wins for LATAM, and I wouldn't be surprised if we do see another one in the relatively near future. And then just as a, as a last note, Webull is not the one that was going to go out via SPAC. That was eToro. And mm -hmm. then I think they ended up raising uh, private capital after that didn't go through. So if you're thinking about, oh my God, which trading app is this? It's not that one. It's the other one. Right. I really do think that we need to go ask all the all the fintech companies to rename themselves to be something a bit more obvious because eToro and Webull are both bovine-inspired names, which is a bit in the weeds for my taste. All right, moving on. Kirsten, London, Black Cavs, never thrown up in one, have taken them. Why are we talking about them? Well, congrats for never throwing up inside a Black Cab. I won't ask you about other countries and cabs. But yes, Uber has basically locked in another partnership, I guess you could call it, Although this one is kind of funny, if you if you read our our coverage of it, Black Cabs, iconic in in London, don't seem super thrilled with it. So Uber is working with Black Cabs. Basically, if you go to London, you open up the Uber app. Now you're going to see London's Black Cabs on there, and. This is part of a trend that is happening. We were talking about trends earlier. There's more than three now. I think we can call it a trend. And it's very interesting to me because when Uber launched, 
as a ride hailing service. I've written this before. The company was more pariah than partner to the taxi industry. Now, 12 years later, it kind of seems like it's going in the other direction. Uber is continuing to make deals with uh, taxi fleet owners. Just earlier this year, there was a partnership with Los Angeles Yellow Cab and its five uh, partner taxi fleets in Southern California. So we're starting to see this more and more capturing of a business that I never thought would happen. So can we just talk about how more pariahs than partners is like the understatement (laughs) of the century? Yeah, Yeah, I would agree with that. And I would also like to say that those cabs are beautiful. I mean, they're really pretty. Should we help Americans who don't know what we're talking about? Because when Uber launched in America, it was black cars, right? That was the thing. It was essentially town cars. Um, And so it was a more luxury option. In, In London, black cabs are a specific, not just color of cab, but also like it's a specific size of car. And if you, if you see a picture, you'll know what we're talking about. They're designed to have a, a really small turning radius. They can fit in some hotels roundabout. It's a whole cultural thing. And so to see them possibly work with Uber I kind of blew my mind. Frankly, it's, it feels like the devil teaming up with St. Peter or something. Yeah. And actually, if you read the spokesperson for the Licensed Taxi Drivers Association. That's what I was going to refer to as well. Yes. Yeah. What was your thoughts about that, Marianne? Well, let me read the quote out loud so that in case the story is not pulled up for everyone. The trade group spokesperson said the group was not interested in sullying the name of London's iconic world-renowned black cab trade by aligning it with Uber, its poor safety record, and everything else that comes with it. So, ouch. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So the question is, who's winning here in this? And clearly, Uber is looking to capture more business. It likely will be helped initially by the fact that all new drivers who do opt for this will benefit from zero commission, meaning they don't have to share a commission with Uber in the first six months. And then Eventually, that will kick up to what the usual range is, which is around 20 to 30 percent. So is this going to be a short term win? And after six months, everyone drops Uber or do they do they stick with it? And then that's what Uber wants. They want that stickiness. Yeah. Uber also wants to drive more GMV to pull revenue from to keep its growth story going. So, you know, I suppose in a sense, Uber showed up and broke all the rules and managed to build a huge business and really kicked the stuffing out of taxi drivers around the world. And now here they are making peace with uh, what's left the industry. So it feels poetic in a way, in a kind of twisted way. Sure. I I will say that last year when I was in San Francisco for Disrupt, I took a taxi maybe two or three different times during the course of the trip. And honestly, it was cheaper than an Uber, easier to get than an Uber, and an overall pleasant experience. So so I had, Marianne, you know that the last thing I want to do is to call bullshit on anything that you would ever say because I adore <laughs> you, but seriously. But you're referring to the, the post-Uber San Francisco taxi world, and they have changed their behavior. Right. So for example, one one time when I was a lad in SF looking to get across the city, I hailed a cab as you do. And the cab pulled up with doors locked, rolled down the window part of the way, went airport. And I went, nope. And he fucked off. (laughs) And that was the taxi experience in San Francisco. So I'm glad it works now. I'm glad Uber has competition, but it didn't work. And it wasn't a a functioning system. So I don't want to say that Uber breaking the rules and getting away with it is good per se, but certainly I think we're in a better, more healthy transport environment now than we were. 
Fair point. So I guess I am saying it's good. Yeah, fair point. <laughs> okay. Speaking of fun things, my deal of the week is all about dogs. My favorite thing. And somehow also private equity. So if you don't know, there's a couple of companies out there that do dog walking, dog care services. One is Rover. One is WAG. The latter of which I believe raised from the SoftBank Vision Fund way back in the day. Anywho, Rover, which is public, um, is being sold to Blackstone for 23 billion dollars. And so when I saw this news, I had totally forgotten that the company existed. Marianne, when was the last time you thought about Rover? I don't even remember, to be honest with you. And I didn't even know it was a public company. Okay. That's even worse than I thought. Kirsten, I know you're more of a cat person than a person on the correct side of the pet divide, but is Rover in your world at all? Uh, No, Rover is not in my world. And you know, I don't know why, because this is kind of a big deal. I should have been very well aware of this. Yeah. Okay, good. Actually, I'm kind of glad that I wasn't the only person behind because I was like, oh shit, that's right. That company. Anyway, so I did a little dive and I looked into it and, uh, you know, this is kind of a cool deal. Turns out normally private equity deals are a little bit boring, but in the case of Rover, the company dropped Q3 numbers relatively recently. The revenue was 66.2 million up 30% year over year, which honestly pretty freaking good. Um, they had gap net income, and lots of adjusted EBITDA, and they raised their guidance. And I went ahead and looked into their cash flow, generating cash, buying back shares, just generally being a pretty solid public company. A small one, to be clear, but I like it. I gotta say, as someone who covers all these future of transportation companies that have like zero revenue, and then never report gap. It was really nice to see like a gap net income number here. Like this is I know. <laughs> I agree. It's it's refreshing and good good for Rover. I think yeah, that's awesome. It seems like a great deal for the company and I mean 2.3 million dollars, not bad. So, I wasn't going to bring this up, but Charlie Munger passed away this week. And if you don't know Charlie, he was kind of Warren Buffett's right-hand man, number two, bestie, working partner. And one of his best quotes was about how EBITDA is just short for bullshit earnings. So I figured I'd I'd I would agree with Charlie. (laughs) R.I.P. Charlie, one of the funniest guys. (laughs) Yeah, I agree with Charlie there. I do wonder, though. So valued at 2.3 has, you know, they're profitable. That's great. They're seeing growth in income, um, growth in revenue, I should say. How much room is there in the market to keep growing? Like that, I guess, is a question mark for all of us. I mean, clearly the Blackstone thinks there's some room to keep growing because, you know, they're, they're probably going to load it up with some debt and then take dividends out of it and expect it to kind of service that debt for them. That's what I'm presuming happens in transactions of this nature. But the company just seems nice and durable. It's almost like a, like a small but surprisingly robust Company and so I, I I'm more curious like if this is a a guide point for us to think about like if you want to sell the private equity for what is effectively a 10x current run rate multiple 9.5 whatever this is what you got to do profitability cash flow generation and uh, and pretty solid growth I I'm just shocked that Rover is the one showing us how to get to a, a 10x revenue multiple you know yeah and and how's Wag doing though. Oh, they, not well. Right. So what's uh, what's Rover doing that? Yeah. What's it doing that WAG isn't? It, it will take longer for me to look up WAG's latest numbers because I didn't memorize them before this. But I will say that WAG's market cap, according to Google Finance, is roughly equivalent to Rover's revenue last quarter. Oh, wow. So that puts the, the, the different fortunes into place. 
I do want to bring up one more thing, though. We are seeing a lot of other companies work towards profitability. So when we talk about Rover doing well and being profitable, that's still not the norm for everybody. Kirsten, can you just tell us about Tier? Because it's kind of sad. Yeah, let's really quickly dive into this one. Uh, Tier Mobility is a German micromobility operator. They are laying off another 22% of their workforce. The whole aim here is to cut costs. Micromobility has proven to be a tough business. People like riding the scooters, but it's real hard to make money off of it. Um, interestingly, though, Tier had been one of the biggies, the one that was expanding and doing well. And it seemed to, you know, really have nailed it in terms of Europe. They had acquired Spin from Ford and then sold it not too long ago to Bird of all companies, which is fascinating to me. So Tier has been cutting for a while. This is another attempt. So to me, the question is, are they as lean as they can be? Can they turn this around into 2024? Yeah. And so when we talk about Rover doing well or other interesting startups that are seeing cool M&A transactions, keep in mind, that's not everybody. There are still some companies that are trying to cross the uh, the chasm, as it were, right now. And there's still a lot of pain ahead for some companies. When we get back, the return of the IPO market and why 2024 could be a very hot period for my favorite type of transaction. But before we get there, my dear friends, a short break. Next year could bring back a lot of tech IPOs, and there are a couple of names already on our list, but they don't want to end up in the bargain bin over at Shein because they want to price well. Marianne, we have two companies, one in the world of clothing, one in the world of social media. I'm stoked. Yeah, I mean, honestly, we we kind of knew that Shein's IPO news was coming. We didn't know exactly when. They filed confidentially to go public here in the U.S., Now, Rita on our team had reported in mid-November that the company was seeking a $90 billion valuation in a potential U.S. IPO. That would be up from the $64 billion it was valued at earlier this year. We don't know yet how much it will be valued at when it goes public, but those are some ballpark figures. I was a little bit more surprised to hear about Reddit. Now, Reddit's been trying to go public for a while now, right? Since 2017, they, the company at, said at it, least, at least, yeah. right? Said it aimed to go public by 2020. They filed privately. I think it was late 2021. They even hired like Goldman Sachs and I can't remember who else, JP Morgan, maybe. Don't quote me on that. And then now they're looking at going, potentially going public in the first quarter of 2024. Kirsten, what's the what's your bet on if they actually do go public next year? Because I don't <laughs> want to jinx it, but also I'm really hopeful. I, I feel like in my world, it's when every time Lime says that they're going to, you know, they're almost ready to go public. It's it's kind of the same. I, I'm wondering, though, with Reddit, what has prompted it, the company to delay it so many times? Is it market timing or more internal debates? You know, is this a, an internal structural issue in which there's maybe some, I don't want to like say that there's infighting or anything like that, but is it happening internally or is it because they just don't feel like the market is the right time? Well, it's an advertising based business. Right. So my guess is, is very much more on the market timing and, and the company's results. I mean, Reddit is even amongst unicorn private tech companies that we expect to go public next year old. Reddit is not a new thing. It was, it's already been bought and sold in its life. So to me, I really doubt there's any lack of alignment between the company and its owners 
about what it wants to do. It's just trying to get it out at a price that everyone kind of agree on. So if there is dissent, Kirsten, my guess would be that it's a question of how much of a haircut people are willing to take in exchange for faster liquidity. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder why they didn't do it earlier when market conditions were so great. Um, I'd have to go back in the archives and look at the condition of the company, I suppose. I think the problem there is back when people could go public, they could also just raise a huge pile of money mm-hmm. from anybody that walked. And so like, <laughs> unfortunately, just the sheer amount of capital that was available meant that some companies missed the IPO window. And, you know, just for example, Reddit's Series F from August of 21, according to Crunchbase, was worth $410 million. So if you can raise several IPOs worth of cash without having to do the work, why would you go public? You know, it's like getting to redshirt your college football. Oh, shit, this analogy is not going to work out. It's it's like having more time, I guess. <laughs> I shouldn't make football analogies on, on the show. I, I will say that maybe Reddit has dropped us a clue that they are really serious this time because they have refreshed the logo. Yeah. <laughs> Marianne, do you remember the the big Reddit blow up from earlier about the API? Kinda. Okay. Well, as as a big Reddit user, I I noticed that. And at the time, I really thought that was going to hurt them Mm -hmm. because people were so mad. I remember a lot of anger. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there was some merit to the complaints and there was some merit to the company's arguments. But interestingly enough, that has entirely blown over as far as I could tell. So maybe Kirsten's timing point can be predicated on the community getting over that. It's possible. Yeah. Then now, now it's all coming back to me. Okay. Right, right, right. The developer community got really upset about, okay. Yeah. I remember that. Isn't it crazy how things seem to blow over quicker than you would think in this world of tech? It's crazy. Like sometimes things happen and you think, oh man, are they ever going to come back from this? And then like months later, it feels like ages ago. Unlike better.com stock price. Hey, (laughs) didn't Um, Apart from being mean about that, I think you're actually right, Marianne. And I I think actually what we're seeing is kind of like cultures compress, like like the the cycles are now much shorter. And so there's, it's not attention span per se. It's, I think it's our ability to have fast communication on a global basis that allows things to come and go more quickly. Back when you had to communicate via telegraph, fashion's changed more slowly, you know, but now that we have fast fashion and so forth, I think. There's just, everything's just accelerated. So maybe we shouldn't be surprised I guess at how fast not. Reddit did get over that. I guess not. I'd say one last thing, and I know we probably need to move on. One thing that I do find interesting here is your point, Alex, about the company was able to raise over $400 million. And that's probably why it did not go public previously. I find it, I don't know if ironic is the word, super interesting that in this current environment that it's opting to go public because obviously... It probably can't raise large sums of cash right now. So I think that's well, we, we that's don't really know how interesting. profitable or unprofitable it is, but you make a good point. I mean, Kirsten and I could could bore everyone on the show about how IPOs were once back in the day fundraising mechanisms, right? Now they're just essentially like a coronation for a multi-billion dollar tech company when they deign to go out. But in the old days, it's how you raise money. So Maybe they didn't need money. I, I don't know. I, I'll just say, like, when this S1 does come, we're all going to stop what we're doing and only read that for a while. Kirsten, before we move on, on the Shein IPO, we know that their company is doing tens of billions in revenue, is at least modestly profitable last year. What's your expectation for that company when we do get to see the results? 
Well, first of all, I think that there is probably a lot of risk factors there that I'm interested in combing through on the S1. So that that's probably top of my list. And also fast fashion. We've I've mentioned this before. There have been other giants of fast fashion that we don't hear about as much anymore. And while Shein is huge and seems to dominate everything right now, I kind of wonder, you know, how big it can get and how how long it can sustain itself, plus some of the environmental risk factors, labor, things like that. That's what I am really interested in. Yeah. If you want to learn more about that, we don't have a lot of more time, but look up what's going on in Xinjiang with Uyghur, possible forced labor and cotton getting its way into the Chinese textile industries. It is worth your time. That's a hell of a note to end that segment on. Let's talk about something that's a little bit happier. European startups. Marianne, the headline from Ingrid London on our site is that European startup funding is going to roughly have this year to $45 billion, according to Atomico. I read that and I was very sad. And then I looked at the chart and turns out it's going to be better than it was in 2020. So yeah. on one hand, down. On the other hand, eh. Right. Yeah. At first, at first glance, you read the headline and you think, hmm, this doesn't look good. But... It's actually more positive overall for that market than you would expect. Um, Ingrid reported that the overall total value of the European tech ecosystem returned to its 2021 record of $3 trillion after dropping $400 billion in value in 2022. So that's actually, I think, very good news. I think it's also very interesting that in Europe, the median valuations are considerably lower than those of their U.S. counterparts, like between 30 and 60 percent lower. So I just feel like it's just a more realistic market overall. Yeah, Kirsten. Yeah, I'm just wondering what is driving that rebound. I think her story sort of gets into that a little bit. Is this a lot of follow on? Is this fresh capital? What's happening? Yeah, she said that the rebound was supported by the continual influx of new companies starting and raising private capital for the first time, and a majority of follow-on capital deployed into the ecosystem has been through flat rounds or up rounds, which is interesting because I feel like we're seeing more down rounds here in the U.S., yeah. I mean, every time we say flat is the new up, I feel like the market then immediately improves. So we look silly, but I'm very impressed with the total dollar amount and the fact that the European ecosystem is once again worth three trillion, or as we might say, three trillion. The flip side of that is that means that the entire European tech ecosystem is worth as much as one American company. <laughs> I mean, not, yeah. not to be rude, yeah. but I mean, like, yeah. you know, I mean, it's, it's at once impressive and at once also surprising given the density of talent, open capital markets, rule of law, like, you know, this is why I'm really excited about France and AI. There's a lot of stuff going on in AI startups in France right now, because wouldn't it be cool for Americans to have some competition from the old continent? You know, <laughs> I think it'd be good. First to address the most important thing you said is that I will never say trilly. <laughs> it will always be trillion because it's All never right. going to be that familiar of a number to me to just be that, you know, on such casual terms with trillion. But to your point, the median valuations for European startups have remained considerably lower of their U.S. counterparts, specifically between 30% and 60% lower. But my experience in Europe has been there is an appetite. Every time we've done an event there, every time I've met up with startup founders, there's an incredible appetite to learn, to start their company. And so I have seen an uptick in activity and I'm waiting for it to really bloom. And maybe maybe AI will be what we have been waiting for. Maybe. I mean, maybe. I think to your point, Alex, is that, you know, I was I was so impressed with 
the number of like returning to the 2021 numbers in terms of total value. But to put it into context, only seven unicorns were set to emerge this year in Europe. That's it. Okay. Okay. But, but hear me out. What if seven is the right number? Which it could be, but I think it just kind of puts it all into context. Like it's, it's just a much smaller ecosystem, which doesn't mean that it's not good and not great or not great quality. Please. I do not, you know, and that's not the point I'm trying to make. I'm just saying, I don't think I realized until I read this story, how smaller of a startup world, I guess there is in Europe than I expected, but it kind of reminds me a little bit of LATAM when you're talking about the enthusiasm. I feel like markets like these where maybe they're not as big, but the, the, passion and the like enthusiasm is just off the charts. That's really interesting. So the other data to put the seven unicorns set to emerge in Europe this year for 2023, it was 48 last year and 108 in 2021. My thought is probably 10 of those a year were actually worth it. So seven this year feels a little low, but not catastrophically. Here's a question though. If we compared like, let's just say aggregate venture capital invested in Europe per year and compare that to Asia right now, how would they stack up? I don't actually know offhand. I, I wish I looked that up beforehand, but you know, I'm kind of curious if, if the EU is, if it's number two and Marianne feels that way about it, that actually makes me feel like the world's even more weighted towards the US in venture capital terms than I, I thought. Right. Because it, it did seem to get much more global in the last five years in a good way. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, But we also have our eyes on other parts of the world, including those bits that involve very, very long flights down and far away and across the international dateline and over the hill and through the wood to Australia. We go, Kirsten. Yeah, some might say down under, right? We we conducted a couple of investor surveys, an Australian investor survey and a New Zealand investor survey. And we're very lucky in that one of our reporters is actually based in New Zealand and is as we speak in Melbourne, talking to a bunch of startup founders and digging in deeper into what this investor survey sort of revealed. What they revealed was some sober valuations <laughs> um, that will lead to an increase in mature startup acquisitions, strategic mergers, and joint ventures across the region. What I am hearing, though, from our reporter Rebecca Bellin, is that while Sydney is 100% the hub of activity, there's been a lot of uptick in activity in Melbourne, and its population is on track to actually overshadow Sydney by, I believe, 2032, which puts that city in a kind of an interesting place for startups and sort of a hub of startups. So if I can't say Trilly, why do you get to say Melbourne? It's Melbourne, right? Well, the proper way of saying it is Melbourne. <laughs> I just I, I just had Google tell me, and it says Melbourne. <laughs> oh, that's a very American accent. Oh, are Americans not right? I thought we always were. <laughs> really? I, I guess we're going to have to agree to disagree. How much money is go- is flowing through Australia and New Zealand? Because we do know about some big Australian companies um, that have done well. Canva, of course, is an example. Zero with an X. So there's a good history of success down there. But I'm curious, like, how much money really is is moving? Should we like pay attention to it weekly or check in more like quarterly? I think we should check in to it quarterly. And one area I think that we should 
keep our two areas, actually, I think that we should keep an eye on. One on the positive side is climate tech. There's a, a lot of activity around climate tech in both regions. Um, and on the converse or downside, fintech investments are seeing a dip. So which I think, Marianne, you could speak to probably reflective of like the greater fintech ecosystem. But these are two areas. Will this continue in 2024? I predict we're going to see more climate tech startups in that region. Um, I could see it even becoming a hub of activity. And I'm not sure if fintech is going to continue down. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I I think in Europe also climate tech is gaining momentum as well. So that's, that's really interesting to me that in Europe and in Australia, New Zealand, it's it's like really get, getting investor interest. Not shocked about the fintech dip. Well, I'm not either. That's sad to say. But another sad news, we have to say good day to everyone on the show today because we are right up against our, our time window. Kirsten, as always, thank you so much for joining us and bringing your expertise. And Marianne, we're going to be back next week on Monday and on Wednesday and on Friday because the great wheels never fall off the equity wagon. And if you need to stay up with us and want to know how we are both rocking and rolling along, we are Equity Pod over on Twitter and Threads. I refuse to call it X. And with that, we're out of here. Thank you both. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Equity is hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Mary Ann Azevedo. We are produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. And a big thank you to the audience development team and Henry Picavet, who manages TechCrunch Audio Products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.